John, uh, John Wilcock is going to be... Our focus tonight. John was as uh, persuasive as Dave Chappelle was funny. And it was persuasive in a really casual, <laughs> polite way. Uh, the way that he pushed people did kind of piss people off. There's a lot of people who knew John and just were a little put off by it. Pushing the limits with everybody. His persona was a reporter, and he uh, really was one. And so he would just sort of report with you when you would uh, when you would talk, answer statements with questions. He also spent so much time, consider this, with the Andy Warhol factory. And that's nothing but personas. And so it's impossible to not have that experience kind of rub off you and your personality, too. But he was cool to get to know, very cool to get to know. I am describing a research project that I completed with Scott Marshall. That is a uh, comic book on John's life. And he was a major part of the underground 60s in the, uh, I was about to say, major part of the underground 60s in the 60s. <laughs> and you might even, that might actually be a correct turn of phrase or accidental turn of phrase because there are people now who are you know, major parts of the 60s in the present day. Like Bob Dylan is a major part of the 60s in 2021. And you could say that in the 60s, John Wilcock was a major part of the 60s, but then probably by the 70s, it would start to kind of break away. But he never stopped doing what he did. All of his, all of his writing is a kind of autobiography. He's just writing what he's thinking. It's concise as hell, too. John was a limit pusher in the coolest way. And I think this is perfectly articulated <laughs> on uh, um, when he first visited. We had some uh, we had some cops outside for doing nothing related to what we were doing. And uh, I lived around a lot of peacocks. There was uh, peacocks that would sort of walk around the house, and that was cool. And the peacocks would come around. Had some interesting history in the 70s or 80s. There was some sort of uh, SWAT team intervention that happened in the house itself where they had to send in a bomb robot. The neighbors around they that were there for it, they loved telling anybody about it, or they told me about it. But I guess I sort of talked to people in a way where they want to tell me weird things about <laughs> the place I'm living in. And so uh, John visited, <laughs> I come home, he's in the front room. He drove, he drove up to Austin. John was born in 1927. This was 2010. So he was 83 at the time. That was so cool. He wanted to drive up to Austin. He was a traveler. And so I was like, okay, you know, okay, that's easier for me. And so, but I didn't know what day he would be arriving. And apparently he went through Marfa and all these other places. John's taste for locations was pretty uh, perfect. He had lived in Ojai, California for I think the last 30 or 40 years of his life. Had had a... Uh, a lot of fun going through Texas. He took like a circuitous route to get to our house. 
So I didn't know what day he'd be there. And I come home and there's John and he's just going through my bookshelf. <laughs> John was uh, just going through my books, <laughs> pulling them off and looking at them and then moving them around. And uh, that was kind of a limit line right there. You know, that was probably the, and that was, I, I walked in, I was like, okay, John, this is, this is, this will be fun to get to know you. I remember smiling at that. And so we had police outside for another problem that had nothing to do with us. And he just sort of pulls out these perfect, beautiful 1960s underground style rolled joints. The most beautiful marijuana cigarette I'd ever seen, and not for reasons you would expect. Like a lot of people say, if I were to say that, I mean like uh, like a spliff or like some some uh, really incredible looking joint. Instead, it was more classy. It was just cool. He made these little brown paper uh, joints and they were just perfect. They were very funny and he's like, do you mind? And he pointed, there was a cop outside for something else and he just pointed to the door. He's like, do you mind? It's been a tough, tough drive. <laughs> and he wanted to go outside to the front on our porch in Texas and smoke uh, just a joint in front of the cops that were there for another thing. So they weren't there for our house. Uh, they were on the street and he was just, I was like, no, John, you want to go into the backyard? I had to grab him. And that was sort of like John pushing a limit. And it was very, very funny to encounter that quality of, of him. I think other scenes and everything he's ever done is sort of defined by just making its participants question their own sort of role in a, in a circumstance. He makes you a little nervous, nervous. Because he's pushing. And what's funny is he could rely on, I, I, whenever I encounter a different kind, kind of personality, I do like to analyze it. It's almost like he knew that I would catch him if he fell, you know? He put you in that, in that role where the rest of the room would cover him. He wasn't gonna actually go out to smoke, but he probably would. He was planning on going out to smoke in front of you know cops on a street in a city that is extremely, at that time, uh, you know, they're not friendly to pot, you know, five or 10 years ago. And yeah, that was funny, but he knew that I would catch him. But I was like, no, no, John, you go over here. We'll go into the back. Great pot too, just very, very, mellow and cool. I like the pot that John smoked. It was, uh, it was very uh, refined. It was a refined taste and a refined head element too. It was, it was cool, which makes sense because he was uh, a colleague of Tom Forsad, F-O-R-C-A-D-E, who created high times and John was a very you know he was a huge uh, pot advocate and high times began as a side project between with John and Tom Forsad with uh, National Weed that was a magazine that they ran together and that became high times but here's another example of John pushing limits in funny ways in a way that it wasn't until tonight I 
I just, I've been thinking about him and I've never thought about him doing this sort of naturally impishly, not consciously impish because he wasn't, I'm just now considering in the time that I got to hang out with John, his role in being around all those factory people. That's in the book too. John's in indoctrination into the Andy Warhol factory. And the many years he stayed there, you know, hung out with the group, went on bus trips with the Velvet Underground or Nico and with, uh, with Andy to California, hung out all the time. And so we talk about Andy Warhol and John's role with that. Prior to that, he'd been a writer for the Village Voice, a column called The Village Square, and it was sort of a personal observation column. And if you want an interesting time capsule of, you know, 19, late 1950s, early 1960s New York, just uh, go seek out the Village Square collection of John's writing. Because it's really, I mean, like weird stuff, just going around town and just observing. <laughs> it's cool. It's a very cool column as a surviving sort of memoir of New York, you know. And there's some weird, weird ones. Uh, when I talked to John about the Village Square book, he would say one question he always was curious about was there was a day that he went around New York and a column was just talking about uh, bathroom stalls with the graffiti on it. Or he was talking about just one, one club and went back and reported in his column about what the, some notable graffiti in the bathroom. And one of them was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And so he wrote that exactly as it, as it was written. And it's the same way Edward Albee wrote Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf a couple years later after the column. And John sort of liked wondering if uh, Edward Albee got the name for the, for the play from his column. And there was a lot of plausibility in it. And so he's proud of that. I think that would delight me. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is a fucked up fucked up play it's uh classically it is probably the most uncomfortable movie i've never seen a play i can't imagine being in a room and watching who's afraid of virginia wolf i can't imagine how uncomfortable that would make me but that is an amazing amazing movie about arguing and belittling and there's it's uh one of the most psycho psychologically interesting things and so let's say that edward alvey got the title for his play from john's column reporting on bathroom stalls and knowing which graffiti to include in the column that was sort of the way john would influence people and obviously you can't trace that back but it makes a lot of sense and so John is uh, nearing the end of his life and he's visiting Austin and we're powwowing for a while. We're, uh, we're figuring out the timeline for what will be in the book. And it's a pretty cool creative meeting. On my, uh, my entire bookshelf, I was so happy that he found something interesting. 
and it was something he'd never read or heard of. That was a huge compliment to me. I was proud of that. <laughs> and so he pulled off my bookshelf here uh, a gringo manual. And it's a book I have from Jose Angel Gutierrez. And it's a gringo manual on how to handle Mexicans. And it's a basic guide for Chicano people, they say. So this is the back of the book. A gringo manual explains 141 tricks, T-R-I-C-K-S in quotes, the gringo uses to cheat and defeat Chicanos. In short, clear descriptions, you'll learn how the gringo will try to stop a Chicano who demands his rights. How and why does the growers exploit Chicano migrants? How do public bodies cheat the Chicano out of time on agendas? And why do Chicanos seldom get elected to office? So that's the uh, back of the book. And, and John would hang up for a week. And this was the only book in my library that he read over that week. And it was really fun. He read uh, Jose Angel Gutierrez's uh, Gringo Manual. And it was on the kitchen table. And he just sort of would start smiling and laughing. And it's a fun book to look through. It's just a bunch of different tricks. So uh, trick number 25, you're fired. And he's talking about Chicanos, how they're, how Chicanos are fired. So it talks about uh, losing a job and it says, so as far as I know, only one Chicano teacher has gone the whole way protesting his termination. The teacher back. So this is basically about Chicano justice and uh, great little book. John um, looked at the book. Um, we smoked some of his very, very uh, like gourmet almost. And it wasn't like gourmet in like a THC level. It was just, it was just really cool. John's pot was so good. I only know, I mean, so it was, it was basically probably trying the same pot that would be so interesting to people like Connor S. Thompson that whenever they actually spoke, he'd remind him to get him more of it. <laughs> And pot is certainly something that was probably very abundant to uh, Hunter Thompson, you know. So for him to make a point to say that, you know, to John. So it was a little bit of that kind of weed. That kind of weed. That kind of weed.